LFG people, thank you for joining us today on Blockchain Insider. For today's show, we're doing something a bit different. We've had lots of new listeners join us for the first time in the past few months, and we wanted to take a beat and not only say hello, but bring you up to speed. As Web3 is only ramping up and sparking curiosity in people from all sectors, this is a conversation we think needs revisiting now more than ever. Recent headlines included Sega licensing an immensely popular IP for a new Web3 game, and Hong Kong establishing a task force to advance Web3 development, further cementing Web3 as something that's here to stay. With all this said, we wanted to re-up a show that we think is super relevant for the crypto space right now. Back in July 2022, we recorded a show called How Do You Know It's Web3? exploring one of the key Web3 conceptual primitives, ownership. Ownership is hugely important for Web3 and its ability to prove that certain digital assets are owned by certain users. We took a look at the how, the why, and the what now with an incredible panel of guests. Without giving too much away, I hope you enjoyed this show and let us know if you think we should revisit this topic now with all of our takeaways from last year, and we might just make that happen for you. 2022 Mauricio, take it away. LFG people, hello, welcome to the Blockchain Insider. I'm Mauricio Magaldi, and this is episode 165. I'm joined today back from a break. Kai Sheffield had a crypto visa. Welcome back, Kai. Good to have you here. Thank you. Excited to, to get the show going. We've got some great guests today. Absolutely. Good to have you back. So in this Insights show, uh, we want to take another deep dive into the wonderful world of Web3. We'll be focusing on one of the key conceptual primitives, which is ownership. In Web3, this is the ability to prove that digital assets are owned by users. But how does it work? How is it any different from Web2? What can we expect that this new type of on-chain ownership is going to affect use cases? To dig into this, we're also joined by Chris Maddern, co-founder and CEO of Floor NFTs. Welcome back to the show, Chris. Great to have you here today. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be back. Absolutely. And making her Blockchain Insider debut, we have Shaylee Adinofi, Director of Business Development at Consensus. Welcome to the show. How are you doing today, Shaylee? I'm doing well. It's beautiful here in Washington, D.C. Thanks for having me. Great. So let's jump in. So what is Web3 ownership? So we're going to start off by looking at Web3 ownership, what it actually means, so we can fully explore this topic. So let's start off with you, Kai. So what is Web3 ownership? What is what is this so important? Yeah, so I think the, the most interesting framing that, that I've seen you know, on this really comes from, from Punk, uh, six five two nine. So I have to, to shout him out as he's been on the podcast circuit, and it it really starts with this notion of you know today you know we're increasingly living digital lives, and we're surrounded by digital objects and assets of you know your tweets you know those are you know, digital objects you know your Instagram photos are digital objects your money your your in game assets, and so the core underlying question is where do those digital objects live. And historically, those digital objects you know, have lived inside individual databases of many different uh, companies who have controlled who can access and you know, in a way the consumer doesn't actually own it, you know, they're just renting and getting access to it from whichever company has that in a database. And what we're seeing now is the possibility 
to be able to build applications where the digital objects are actually stored in an open neutral database that is a public blockchain that no single entity owns and controls. And then the pointer to prove ownership you know, of those objects is controlled by a private cryptographic key that's held you know, in a crypto wallet. And so the fundamental question for society going forward is, if digital objects are important and they're going to impact our day-to-day -day lives in a major way, where should they be stored and what should you know, the you know, access be to them? And we're seeing different models emerge and they're really only two. It's either they're stored in a database controlled by one company or they're they're stored on a blockchain that you you have a private cryptographic key that you can control that that proves your ownership of it. And you know there are many trade-offs and I think it's not one is objectively better than the other in all use cases, but they're just different architectures and design decisions that you can have you know, as you build a product that incorporates digital objects. Absolutely. So I'll turn it to you, uh, Chris, in, in a sense of the you're involved or direct um, development of the NFT world. NFT is one of the forms of representing ownership in Web3. What are the business models that are emerging from this and how, how much more you know, control uh, you're seeing the users have in this new kind of framework? Yeah, I, th I think there's there's so many things going to that. And I think Kai uh, summarized some of the kind of primitives quite well, which are, you know, just what does it mean to physically, technically uh, be able to indefinitely retain, be able to exploit in the ways that you want, whether that's use them, destroy them, compose them, derive things from them, whatever it is. And that's kind of one really important layer. I think when you get up another layer, you start to get to things like cultural expectations of what that ownership means both for objects, where much of it's handled technically, but also for entities too. Uh, things where you know you may be a member of a DAO or you may own NFTs that give you kind of certain rights inside of groups. Um, and I think there, there's as much of a cultural component to it as there is a technical component today. Like we always had the tools to let people participate financially inside of the, the projects, the communities they create but we never had the cultural expectation. There was always a power dynamic between those creating and those consuming that we've managed to kind of reverse early in Web3 and create the norm that by providing value and by bringing yourself and your skills and whatever else it is you bring, depending upon the group, to something, that you can have an expectation of participation, which is, I would argue, what kind of the idea of ownership is for things that are not strictly, you know, like in the case of an NFT, you own it, it's a thing you have, you hold, you do stuff with. And I think to your question, that opens lots of interesting you know, business models, two of which I've personally explored. Uh, so Floor, um, we started out as kind of an NFT portfolio tracking app, but the thing that we did a little differently is it was funded uh, from the get-go as an NFT. Um, users would buy the NFT to join the community um, to help us build along the way. And it was the first token-gated iOS app where you had to have the NFT in order to use the app. And so for the first $2 million that funded the project were directly raised by NFTs. The value of those NFTs now for those consumers who bought them is between 25 to 25x what they paid for it. So they've also seen kind of market appreciation in the asset as people have kind of bet on the project. And so it's turned into this really interesting flywheel where... You know, we got to build this early supporting community of awesome people. Um, and, you know, they got to both be part of something, get access to this thing early, but actually financially gain 
out of the market's perception of progress uh, in the project. And then on the far other side uh, with LinksDAO, where uh, we sold an NFT and are essentially trying to um, tokenize the ability to buy and control a real world golf club. Um, and so it's you know, a little bit more down kind of the more traditional DAO-y model, although it's actually not quite how it's legally structured. And like, how can you give people access, a voice, say, and kind of a, a feeling of ownership of a real world asset from kind of a digital good? Uh, and I, I think um, if we can solve that, if someone can solve that, that's going to become a really, really powerful model to scale up. Um, it's almost like when New York City invented the co-op board in like the, was it the 70s or the 80s? And then like all of a sudden that became kind of the prevailing model for how you give protections and ownership for uh, living space in New York. I think this can do a similar thing for the ownership of property uh, by groups of people. Yeah. Now you you started off talking about entities and 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 why it's more of a professional kind of angle. So I want to tap into your expertise at Consensus, uh, Shaylee. What are you seeing in more of like this enterprise-like world? Is this something that you can comment on for us? Because I know Consensus is a, a technology service provider in the world of Ethereum and and other blockchains, but. What are you seeing impacting enterprises with this whole new concept of uh, ownership through uh, Web3? Yeah, um, so it's interesting. We're seeing a lot of activity in the luxury goods space. So we partnered with LVMH, Cartier, Prada, and some others to help them create a blockchain to tackle counterfeit goods. So, you know, here's an example. You go to a consignment shop and find your secondhand Prada bag, and that product, that bag will be linked to an NFT for proof of authenticity. So this is just like a real world current use case that has a problem that needs to be solved and NFTs are, are the solution. Um, but then, you know, I think over time, those luxury brands, they've, they admit that they've lost touch with their audience, some of them, um, due to the way that distribution is happening of those goods. So it's a way for them to also create exclusive events and, um, you know, curate their consumers uh, in the future, which is wonderful. Uh, and then, you know, we, we, we've done a number of experiences. We're seeing experiences like we did the Damien Hurst uh, currency dropped. I, I am one of 10,000 owners of, um, and I actually burned my NFT and I have a, actual, the, the physical <laughs> art piece in my home of the Damien Hurst drop. And then, you know, we, we've also done some things in the sports and gaming space, um, music. So we're, we're seeing interest, a lot of interest, I would say, you know, in entertainment, media, sports and gaming. Those are the, the real big areas. But then, of course, like the luxury goods sector. Interesting. Yeah, no, I think there's this whole... And I, I don't like the word, but people call it fidgetal. No, no, <laughs> The no. physical digital <laughs> boundary, which is, you know, it sounds kind of silly, but it, I've, I've been, I've seen this used many times. And I think through maybe NFTs is kind of where we're going to see this kind of blend in and become kind of a representation of things that you own in real world, you can use in the digital. But anyway. I wanted to unpack a little more of like, to me, I think what's super interesting is you have these new business models where I think we've talked about this in earlier episodes of the show, but this distinction between a membership and a subscription. And so, Chris, I feel like you've kind of seen this directly as you've built it, but like, you know, subscriptions have been incredible internet business models for a long time, 
but it tends to be one size fits all. And it's kind of single player. It's, you know, I'm just interacting with the service of which I'm a subscriber to. That service is trying to, you know, get as many subscribers as they possibly can. And it's a, you know, one-way interaction between, you know, the subscriber you know, and the service to get value. And I might cancel my subscription. Then you have this new notion of a membership where, you know, I'm getting certain benefits. I'm potentially spending, you know, more. It's like I'm buying a lifetime membership you know, to this service, and maybe it's not a great service yet, but I'm making a bet that it will be a good service. And then I could, you know, when I'm done using that service, could potentially sell it or transfer my membership to someone else. And so you could build not for how do I get 100 million subscribers, but how do I get 10,000 members? And it seems like there are only, there are certain benefits that only really work when you have a smaller community of members, but you could still monetize it through the resales that happen to those memberships. So how do you compare and contrast, like are digital memberships better than subscriptions for certain use cases? And, and how have you thought about that before? Yeah, such a such an interesting question. Like there's some days that you know you feel like a genius and there are other days you feel like a complete idiot. And the truth is we're trying to figure out how these models should work. You know, abstracting it a little bit on the internet, up till now, we've really seen two models that work, or three. One that is you know, charge people for the product. Subscriptions in the last you know, six, seven years have been the primary way to do that. Uh, another is advertising, um, which is you know the thing that I think we all hope to not introduce to Web3, although you know, you know it's going to happen at some point. Um, and then the third is to share in the value in value exchanges. And so like marketplaces, you, know, you take a fee, a commission, whatever it is. And so... Right now, uh, it looks a lot like the former, the first. It looks a lot like you know selling someone access to the product. You know, it's a lifetime membership. Um, it's a very low velocity value exchange. So, for example, uh, you can sell your NFT. It doesn't have to be lifetime, um, but then it will be lifetime for the next person. And on that edge, you know, we take a commission. I think our royalty is set at ten percent. So, ten percent of every changing of hands, um, you know, re kind of contributes back to the project. I think that the ultimate answer here will be to create higher velocity value exchanges, not between the project and the users, but rather between the users themselves and, you know, for the platform to participate in those. The closest thing that we've seen today is people who are trying to kind of approximate value accretive ecosystems through token launches. Um, today, that's the tool that we have that looks most like that. I think we'll have we'll see a lot of innovation there in areas where users can either with the project or with each other do things that are a value exchange for them, you know, dozens of times a week, maybe dozens of times a day, where the projects either through um, deflationary practices in the currency by burning currency or in other kind of fee structures, uh, like the, the MetaMask kind of um, swapping model, get to participate long-term in revenue and provide because the problem with selling something up front is you know you may end up having to service that customer forever and you know may or may not you need a you need a model that over time as it grows and the customer base grows and the customer's activity grows uh your revenue grows to cover them and then you mentioned metamask you know shaley like how do you think about the the role that wallets play in these you know, new types of web3 you know, business models and and memberships that that Chris mentioned. How does that change the way that someone you know uses a wallet today versus you know how they used a wallet you know, maybe a, a few years ago? 
Yeah, I mean, we're still figuring that out. And one activity that we just started is MetaMask Snaps, which is extending out to developers the ability to create new features within MetaMask. Of course, we have to figure out, you know, like we, we're going to need to audit them and make sure they're secure. But we really want to give developers and end users the full capability of being able to explore Web3 on their own terms. And, you know, while still providing a secure and um, privacy-preserving way of doing that. And, and we're, you know, this, this is, we're all figuring it out together, but I think what that looks like is, you know, right now, MetaMask is, um, it's, it's where you have access to your accounts and, and data and you choose what to share and keep private. And um, what we, we consider that like a cryptographic consent manager, so to speak. And then we're, we're slowly, you know, working with multiple fiat on-ramp providers so, so that we can provide um, access in all the different geographic regions. But I think the end goal is to really provide that, extend out that access so that we're not the ones being an intermediary. Really, we're just providing the tools in a way that you can then create, interact with DAOs, create DAOs, create DAPs, whatever it is that you need to do um, in a secure manner. And, 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 and I think one, one example of how people are using governance tokens is like that, that ownership uh, model of like, you know, I, I would say that in the early days, BTC and ETH, they were, they were your way. You could get ETH and BTC for helping to secure the network, right? And now you have token-based networks built on Ethereum um, having new models of ownership that are not necessarily the same as like a cooperative or shareholder equity model, and that's governance, right? So you, the ownership might be given in the form of a token for a service or liquidity for trade um, or also governing the changes to the network. So I think that governance model will expand over time and, and we'll see what happens with that. It's, it's really interesting. It feels like almost like ownership is becoming a part of identity and wallets are these consent managers you know, for that. And so when a lot of people think about identity, they think about you know, who you are, your government name and your, your driver's license. Uh, but then there's, you know, what do you own? What communities are you a part of? What have you purchased before? In many ways, it says a lot more about who you are of all the things that you've collected over time than just what your birth name is. And so wallets are kind of transforming into these inventories of your identity that you're then taking with you everywhere you go across the internet. And it feels like the the potential to create much more customized experiences when someone can show up and connect the wallet and tell you everything about them and their life story much easier than you know they can you know starting from scratch with your service. So Marissa, how, how do you think about you know kind of that intersection of identity and ownership and, and what wallets are doing? I love the the part it this is portable. Like this is for me like super powerful. The ownership in Web3 means you can take your data with you anywhere. Like it, it doesn't matter your the platform you're using. The platform's coming to your data. It's not you, like, servicing your data to the platform. So it, it really changes, like, this kind of center of gravity of where in Web 2 we're generating this incredible amount of data that everyone else is monetizing but the user. But now in Web 3, because the keys are with us, 
as users, and the data is stored in a distributed database such as the blockchain, and I can just get my keys and move elsewhere and and service myself with a better user experience, a better economics, a better you know take rate. That's 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 a lot of power being moved from platforms to users with a you know we we can't oversimplify this but it's it's a tiny changing concept right we keep we keep talking about privacy and in web2 privacy is really like a nuisance because it's privacy prevents the web2 business models to actually come to fruition and when we're talking about ownership in web3 we're you know moving your stuff with us that means that now i get to the side not only with my you know, attention, which is what is being pursued in Web2, but also with my decision-making power, as uh, Shaley was mentioning about the governance and um, how I'm going to actually use the membership, um, as Chris was saying. So it's it's really like the decisions are micro because now you get to decide at every interaction what you do with your data, and that is really, really powerful. That changes the balance of things. Um, And one of the kind of use cases that kind of, is trying to actually put this thing forth is the Lance protocol, the social media for Web3 that the guys in Aave have developed, which is, it's a really wild concept. If you if you get that framework and compare that with any social network we have in Web2, it's radically different. And, you know, if, if you're a Web2 company and you're not actually studying this, you're at risk. And Chris, how, how do you think about like this you know, the, the web two versus web three, you know, it, it, are they directly opposed? And like, what is like web three social look like? Do you, do you see Instagram and Twitter and others just kind of being an interface, you know, on top of NFTs? Do you think they're going to be hundreds of different kind of community specific social networks, uh, that pop up or like, what is the, the web three social landscape you know, in a few years look like in your mind? Yeah, this is a, a great question. I think there's a ton of different components to it. Number one is, you know, where does your identity live and you know, how do we represent ourselves online? Do we have one identity? Do we have multiple identities? It's always fascinating to study how uh, people use Twitter in parts of Asia, particularly Japan. It's socially normal to create a Twitter account for each of your interests and you know, follow people, but also express things on that topic there. And I think what we've ended up with in Web2 is highly centralized social networks for two reasons. One, uh, the data that they have from building uh, the other parts of the social network are proprietary. And so they have a massive lock-in advantage and the networks are proprietary and closed. And so they have network effects in the business. Um, It's possible to build that on a blockchain, but the prevailing um, sentiment right now seems to be, you know, a somewhat open uh, view of these things on the blockchain which I think is going to lead us to a much more integrated social model, like where in Web2, everything aligns under a brand and then you have your groups on certain topics. I expect a lot of this to be more distributed uh, in different places that are focused on interest areas or groups and communities um, and then have the technology uh, be horizontalized. And then to the point, I can't remember if it was uh, Kyle Shaler that made it, Uh, on-chain reputation here is going to be super important. And I think whether we end up interacting as ourselves, interacting as pseudonyms, you know, there really isn't anonymity, although I think anonymity is actually just 
inherently a bad thing. I think what you'll start to see is people build up on-chain reputation around pseudonyms. And some people will choose to live the same life in both worlds. Others will live as a different pseudonym. Uh, but those pseudonyms will gain reputation and therefore be kind of potential good actors or potential bad actors um, in the space, but in a way that you can understand. And I, I'm really excited to see how that evolves. I think there is still one really big problem with Web3 Social. So I spent a bunch of time with the DSO folks and on the DSO platform back when it was BitClout. And one of the main or a, a big benefit of blockchains today is sidewards visibility. Uh, it means, you know, if you're not the person who wrote the software, you can still see the data that it created and left on the blockchain so you can understand from the outside what's going on. That's really good for financial transactions because it allows you to kind of re-verify the ledger. It's potentially really dangerous for social ones um, because, you know, it means all of a sudden, at least today in the protocols that we've seen, you know, who you are friends with, who you have messaged, you know, even if the contents of those payloads are... Uh, encrypted, a lot of sidewards visibility in the real world gets kind of really messy and potentially really dangerous when you think about use cases like stalking and targeted harassment and, you know, robbery and things like that. And so I think there's a very natural set of conflicts between the blockchain and social use cases for a lot of those reasons. Solvable problems um, and portable identity might make it worth solving them. I do think it's worth considering, though, does everything have to be on a blockchain? That seems like the key question of like, in, in too often Web 2 versus Web 3, it's this binary versus a spectrum of decentralization that you can look at at each layer of how decentralized does this need to be? What can happen off chain? What can happen on chain? And it's like, you know, you have entrepreneurs just taking shots at all these different points on the spectrum from almost entirely decentralized, almost entirely centralized. And maybe we land somewhere you know, in the middle, depending on which layer you're looking at. But Shaylee, how, how do you think about you know, Web3 social and you know, how you know, consumer social behaviors will change when they have a wallet, when they have ownership and identity inside of it, and what types of products and applications will be built on it? I, I think it's too early to tell on how things will end up only because I, I think we've lost some trust, right? Let's be real and and not forget what, what happened with, uh, you know, Tara. And, and I think, unfortunately, we're um, considered to be like scammy and untrustworthy when we are supposed to be like the trust networks, right? So, so I think like something that MetaMask is doing right now is for the victims of, you know, these loss of funds through these scams, we, we partnered with Asset Realty to um, be able to work on recovering those funds those anywhere in the world. Any um, MetaMask user will have access to that service. And I'm hoping that through these kinds of, you know, support services, we can rebuild the trust that's needed to get users back into these platforms, trading, building, and things like that. Right now, you know, it is just about security and building that trust back up. But what I think it'll look like in the future is obviously, I, I think the the ownership narrative is just too strong for them to walk away from. And I, I think like maybe you won't work for one one entity. You'll work for several DAOs in the future, right? You won't be working for like a Visa or a Consensus. You'll be working for multiple DAOs. 
What does that look like? Uh, you know, you, you could be doing marketing, you could be doing engineering. I think we're all going to be contributing to society and, and building things in a, in a totally different way. I think that's such a good point. Um, and, you know, to your point about working for, like, you're not going to be working for anyone. You're going to be working for yourself and contributing your skills across the ecosystem in places that you want to, where people are willing to to compensate you for. And portability of reputation between those use cases, I think is incredibly important. Like if you're going to have the freedom to move dynamically from, you know, working at LinkStyle one day, floor the next day, um, you know, somewhere else the next, the overhead of understanding, you know, can this person do it has to be a lot lower than we accept in Web2 where, you know, we do a two-week interview process and then hire you like open-endedly. So um, I think we'll take a quick pause here to hear from our sponsors and we'll be back in a bit. This episode is brought to you by Visa, one of the world's leaders in digital payments. Crypto has opened up a new world of possibilities and Visa is helping everyone take part. Consumers can now enjoy the freedom and flexibility of using their Visa crypto link cards for everyday purchases at millions of Visa accepting merchant locations around the world. Join us in this new money movement. Learn more at visa.com forward slash crypto. We all know SMEs are the backbone of any economy. So why are they still so underserved? 67% of them globally say fighting for survival is their top challenge. It's time for financial services to put its cape on. At 11FS Ventures, we're building, researching, strategizing, designing, and engineering game-changing propositions with banks and fintechs to better serve the SME market. We've already helped RBS better serve small business owners and sole traders by bringing metal to life. So the question is, what do you want us to help make a reality for you? Let us know at 11FS.com ventures. That's 11FS.com ventures. All right, we're back. So moving on, uh, maybe time to focus a little bit on the financial side of things. So I'm going to kind of go through the, the room here, but uh, what are the top finance or financial use cases for uh, Web3 ownership that you guys feel are most prominent? I mean, we we'll talk a little bit about um, secondary uh, market royalties, which is kind of, you know, play the part of, you know, moving money around. What have you seen that is kind of working best uh, when it crosses both the ownership side of things with the financial, maybe cash flows and payments, et cetera? Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's something, first of all, for financial inclusion, which is why I came into this space in the, you know, to start with, I think there's tremendous potential. So you have things like Goldfinch Finance doing uncollateralized loans in emerging markets, which is really interesting. You know, but but mostly DeFi, as we know it, has been experimental in nature. And so we, we need to improve. But the, the prospects of open source ecosystems in which anyone can build and participate in financial services is really exciting. Uh, and so I, I think we've always had the potential to improve consumer financial experiences or services, but we're, we're not at that scale yet. The uncollateralized lending and and trading and and all of that, I think, is is we're seeing early signs of of something useful. Good, yeah. We're also seeing some forms of ownership when it 
comes to other types of media, such as music. So Chris, you've been involved with NFT for a long time. Have you dabbled with uh, anything NFT in music? How do you see this uh, play? I mean, we did do a, a, an episode on this, but just to to try and uh, you know bounce off of you from your experience, uh, that's that changes how we own music as well, right? Yeah, uh, R.I.P. music NFTs. Uh, this has been one of everyone's favorite example use cases that uh, is a good example of where the concentration of consumer interest and the alignment of the targets of that interest with just massive corporate interests have made it really, really tough because anyone can go and make their music copyright an NFT. The problem is the ones that anyone actually cares about uh, those people have no incentive today to disrupt their own system. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. I think honestly, as I think about where music and NFTs are going to go, I actually don't think it's going to be quite as literal. Uh, and you know, who knows, it probably happens in time. In time, everything probably ends up on the blockchain when it comes to rights and royalties. But I think that the things that work near term will actually be a lot lighter weight and will represent the community that exists around um, artists and potentially will allow them to get involved. But this is where, particularly in the US, the laws around regulation of DeFi are going to be really, really interesting because you know everything ownership meets finance really comes down to you know ownership and yield and then what you do to get that yield. You know, there's lots of interesting examples of that. Uh, you know, a, you could even just think about a Uniswap position, which is you know represented by an NFT. That you know, if you can trade that NFT, you can essentially like sell bond positions, yield positions. That's super cool and interesting. It's probably one of the most similar things to like a royalty rights stream uh, from an NFT. I just don't expect anybody that matters to do that anytime soon. Um, I, I don't think the model exists, and I don't think the people who actually own the IP that's super interesting are likely to do it anytime soon. But like, sign me up for the Taylor Swift fan club now. <laughs> yeah, that'll, that'll, be, that'll be great. Now, just uh, Kai, uh, to you, I mean, we're also seeing, we, we know that uh, the real scarcity in blockchains is block space, right? We, we, we've, we've been through that already. Um, but there's also the digital land, and you can own digital land in places such as the sandbox, Decentraland, and all these open metaverses. Does it really change scarcity? Do you, do you believe that that ownership in those kind of spaces will change how we perceive value, even though it's like digital ownership and provable, et cetera? Does that scarcity really exist? And, and what does it mean to users? So I'd say I'm probably pretty skeptical and, and just really have struggled understanding a lot of the the digital land, uh, partly because to me it feels like the digital, most of these you know, projects, the digital land is valuable when you develop on top of it and you have to build interesting things and experiences that make people want to go and use that land. And you know, it feels like if it's very expensive to purchase land in the first place, then you're not really optimizing for who are the people who are the most creative and you know well positioned to make that land really useful. And if I'm someone who's creative and can build something really useful, I don't want to build it on top of someone else's land. And so I think it's it's this really interesting model that 
you know, they've been successful in selling, you know, probably what hundreds of millions of dollars or more of, of digital land across a number of spaces. Um, but it feels to me that you have to have some reason that someone wants to be there or some business or something that you build on top of it. And in my mind, that makes more sense if you let anyone claim any land for free and then build whatever they want on top of it. And after they build something that has some value, then maybe the land itself, you could sell what you've built you know, with the land. Uh, but starting from scratch, it's just hard to hard for me to wrap my head around. And maybe I, I just don't get it. Of like, because my land is next to someone else's, if neither of us have built anything on it or have the right skills or kind of motivation to, why either of those would be valuable. But curious what, like Chris and Chaley, like what's your model for ownership of land itself versus ownership of, you know, things built on top of land? Yeah, I mean, I, I have mixed feelings about it too. But um, I, I think it's a space where things are limitless, right? If you think about Decentraland or any like anything in this virtual reality, it is it is a platform for designers, creators to sort of pitch ideas, right, and get them put into games or into real life potentially, right? So it's a it's a maybe it's a staging site. We have a consensus headquarters in Decentraland, which is cool. But but maybe it's a place where like a, a yacht designer can go in, put in their yacht design, and then somebody in the real world will buy that design because they like it. Um, I've seen those use cases. So so I think with VR and gaming, I think there there it's a maybe like a staging space or an ideas hub. I do not think we're going to remember the skeuomorphic digital land part of the metaverse particularly well when we look back. I think we're taking, you know, a concept which can enforce scarcity into a world where I think one of the main benefits is that it doesn't have any and that it's an infinite canvas that you can write on. I think charging at the front door to get into an artificially scarce skeuomorph that enforces all of the downsides of the real world space onto a digital canvas that doesn't have to have them or because we can't think of anything kind of smarter and more fun to do there is, you know, I, I think like everything we do, it's a fun experiment and, you know, people enjoy it. Valuable things are happening there. Creativity is happening there. That's awesome. But I think we'll remember this as a very immature phase of what ultimately uh, these things become. Yeah, that, that's... Uh... I like the the whole thing about, you know, skeuomorphism. Why do I need to have an avatar that looks like me dressed as a alligator if I can be a blob of light with two thumbs? It really baffles me. <laughs> I wanted to come back to like we talked about like some of the positive aspects of, you know, having ownership as a part of your identity that is held in a wallet that you could take with you where you go versus and that's kind of one central repository of your ownership that it's portable, you take it with you everywhere, versus ownership and access today being, I have 20 different accounts that are at 20 different websites that access 20 different databases. Like for mainstream consumers, doesn't this really highlight the challenge around private key management where there's no account I could lose today that would be my entire identity off of everything? Do you think people will aggregate ownership and objects into one account or one wallet 
And the value of that private key effectively becomes their entire life of everything that they've collected. Or do you expect that there will be this kind of the best practice is you actually have multiple different wallets with different profiles of different type of objects, but then it breaks that real portability where you show up and everyone knows everything about you. So Chris, how, how do you think about those trade-offs and like some of the downsides of the Web3 ownership? Well, first, a controversial criticism. Uh, Every single product we use to interact with the world of crypto right now is literally terrible. And you know, when you think about even Institution Nakamoto's original white paper, there's like a little throwaway line, which is like, and for obvious reasons, every single transaction should create a new public-private key pair. And what we created in wallets is like basically a transaction signer and password manager that for the most part manages like one or a few passwords and doesn't really help you in understanding who, what, where you should be, where you should be using which keys and and all of that. And so I think there's you know, a philosophical question, which is what does the matrix of identity and wallets look like? You know, is a wallet an identity? Is a wallet composed of multiple identities? Is an identity composed of multiple wallets? Um, my instinct is maybe it's the last. And then, you know, the software should be managing this for us. Like, I want to press a buy button. I don't want to go and like create a new signing wallet, um, but under the hood, like it probably makes sense for all of those wallets, all of those transactions to be custody, to like be in, put into safe wallets that then get kind of passed back. And I think this is where, particularly where if you have custody providers in, you can also provide quite a lot of obfuscation of where funds really are coming from and going to at the edge of the network. Because going back to Sidewards visibility, I don't think we think enough about how much Coinbase and Robinhood have saved us from really deep societal issues of Sidewards visibility of people's accounts, particularly when you mash that up with the prevailing model of a wallet as an identity with .eth domains. Um, I think the amount of crime um, and just like other social issues that we'd have from Sidewards visibility of funds and fund movements would be enormous. People would being would be being robbed, mugged, killed every day, if not for the fact that our custodians obfuscate at the edge of the network. Fascinating, Shaylee. How how do you think about that? Yeah, you know, from the the MetaMask lens of like, you know, the downs, some of the challenges with non custodial key management and how to protect consumers. Yeah, I mean, it really comes down to security, user experience, and choice, right? And giving users, developers, everyone in the ecosystem choice of who they want to interact with and how. And then and then obviously we all have so much work to do on user experience, user interfaces. Um, so, I mean, that's the number one thing is if we can figure out a secure and uh, a secure way to give users one easy uh, point of access with decentralized, identity or this identity backpack, as my friend Evan McCullen says, that works for Disco, which is a new identity startup, you know, the it would be really convenient. I think users will have the choice of having multiple versus one, but just like we use like a password manager, you know, for some of our, just to not have like a gazillion passwords, people will choose to use one versus many if they can. If, if we can give them the security and good UX. And, and part of the balance around privacy, I think what you're pointing out, Chris, it's like, you know, 
today, because we don't have you know ways that that you could really effectively you know do you know on chain privacy or some of the new privacy you know, protocols are not really mature. Custodial wallets become really the only way that you can have privacy, and so it's this double edged like you know the whole point is to be able to show the things that you own to get certain benefits and build your identity. But then if you show the things that you own, then you know, you're potentially putting yourself you know, at risk if you own a lot of things. And so it feels like it's just how do people balance you know, keeping assets in custodial platforms versus non-custodial? And then do those platforms start to merge in the future where you have a single account you know, that obfuscates you know, what's being held on-chain in a non-custodial wallet and what's being held you know, in, in a custodian? Um, so any more thoughts on like how that comes together of you know, particularly in a multi-chain way where you're not switching between different blockchains, it's more of a familiar account model that obfuscates where the assets are held on the back end. Yeah, so I think there is some interesting work going on at the protocol level, and maybe this is like a layer three or some other layer of Web3 uh, with like Mina protocol, Panther protocol, so these privacy-specific protocols that I think will help us to solve that problem. I can't see the solution quite yet, but um, it will be across multiple blockchains and provide that like obfuscation. Yeah. Well, one more, I think we're getting near the, the end, but one more question I have that you, you hear Web3 all the time you know, on Twitter, you have all these debates. Like, Chris, what do you think is the biggest, one of the biggest misconceptions about Web3 and when people hear Web3 and they just scoff at it and say, oh, like, yeah, this is a disaster. Like, unpack, like, what are some of the things that, you know, Web3 is being positioned as that you you don't want it uh, to be seen as or that is a misconception? Yeah, probably the easiest is, you know, we've done this to ourselves. The vast majority of NFT use cases today are kind of dumb. Um, and some of them are fun. And I, I think there's like some glimmers of really good long-term things in there. But, you know, $250,000 pictures of apes probably didn't really help us very much. And so I think, you know, Web3 is to a lot of people because, you know, the media has picked up on the stuff that's like most sensational, like multi-million dollar sales, collections that made you know, dozens to hundreds of people millionaires overnight that were like 15 years old. I think it's got this like very hype-driven narrative, this kind of money-driven narrative, as well as kind of a very exclusive and kind of like toy-like vibe. But, you know, we all know the most important things start out feeling like toys and, you know, our toy phase just looks particularly uh, obnoxious, to be honest with you. And so, you know, I, my biggest hope is that that doesn't keep folks out because, you know, at its core, Web3 is about inclusion and participation and the movement of NFT assets to, you know, just these crazy prices and like a lot less innovation at the bottom end because people pattern match to this model of Basie and CryptoPunks and other things like that uh, and started pursuing the the cash. Um, my, my biggest hope is people give it a second chance as we come out of this next period of uh, lower activity and give it a chance for the things that it can be, which is participation at all levels, uh, is utility, um, is kind of binding community together around shared interest and shared assets. Um, I think Web3 can be so much more than I think people see it for today. Yeah, I, I have to agree. Um, rather than being exclusive and 
pump and dump schemes and scammy, we, we really need to provide secure access to all and, and for this ownership kind of structure to grow and for disintermediation to really occur where people can build their own projects and participate in projects and gain the rewards for those, right? For their own work and participation. And I, we have a lot of work to do there. So I, what I do want Web3 to still be about inclusion and access and ownership, but it is not right now. Uh, it, it's a hope. So let's make it that. Join us. <laughs> Yeah, I think my my uh, hope is that we don't become just the internet of money. Like it, it has to be more than that. Uh, and I think to to both your points is inclusion and utility. I mean, if if we can focus on solving real problems with this new decentralized infrastructure we're we're building, uh, we can be very very successful as a society uh, if we avoid the pitfalls of becoming overly financialized for everything. So. Yeah, that is also my hope, and uh, we we need to build towards that. So thank you, guys. That kind of wraps up our uh, discussion. Thank you guys so much for uh, joining us here today. So as we wrap up, where can people find more about what you guys are up to, Chris? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Chris Madden and uh, Floor at FloorNFTs or FloorNFTs.io. Shaylee. You can find me at at Shaylee A on Twitter and uh, consensus.net, consensus with a Y, not a U. Kai. Uh, on Twitter at Kai Sheffield and visa.com slash crypto. Great. So you guys can find me on 0x Mauricio on Twitter and Mauricio Magaldi on LinkedIn and elevenfest.com, obviously. Thank you so much for listening. If you like what you've heard, subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode. We have lots in the works and we're so excited to be talking about crypto blockchain with you all again. If you can't wait till the next episode, take a look at the many, many previous episodes. We have a huge library. Get yourself properly immersed in the world of crypto. And if you really love this, please leave us a review. It helps us to make it better. It helps other people find the show. And as always, if you want to join the conversation, find us on social media. Just search for 11FS or Blockchain Insider or email us at podcast at 11 Stay rare. Stay weird. LFG.